This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello and welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 44. This is your podcast for all things related to digital transformation, the the people process and technology side of change. I'm excited for another great episode today, but uh, before we do that, uh, Kyler, welcome back to the show as always. Thank you for having me. So uh, good uh, show we've got planned for you today, three segments per the usual, but uh, different topics than we've covered in the past. Uh, We're going to start off the show today talking about uh, emerging technologies in the global digital transformation space. So you've got a few sort of emerging trends and articles you've uncovered in your research over the last a few days since our last our last episode. And so Kyler's going to walk us through some of that here in the first segment. And then later, we're going to bring on our first guest, who is Amanda Patton, who's a manager of strategy and transformation at uh, Third Stage Consulting. And she's going to walk us through sort of a a real-time, in-progress digital transformation case study. So this is not a completed case study where you look back with fondness of all the the good and the bad and the ugly. It's more of we're in the trenches right now with the client. These are the things that are going well. These are the things that are not going so well or the things that that we're trying to address. And so I will have Amanda on a little bit later to talk through that case study with us. And and just so you know, it's the company that we're going to talk through uh, that we can't reveal by name is a mid-size consumer packaged goods company that's a manufacturer and a distribution company uh, based in the United States, but with global sales and and global uh, appeal uh, that's going through a digital transformation, and we're helping them through that transformation as we speak. So we're going to talk through some of those initial lessons learned from the trenches uh, here later with Amanda. And then finally, we are going to have uh, Adam Cheatham on the show again. He's been on the show a few times, including last week when we had our panel discussion about supply chain management. He was part of that panel and he's been on, I think, several other times uh, prior to that. So we'll have Adam Cheatham, who is also a, a, he's a director of strategy and transformation at Third Stage Consulting. He's going to be on talking about uh, end of life for Great Plains uh, within the Microsoft Dynamics universe, but we're going to sort of tie that back to just end of life and transitioning from legacy uh, to uh, current ERP systems in general, because it's not just Microsoft that's going through that challenge. Many vendors are sort of uh, sunsetting out their their products, so we're going to talk through um, some of that with Adam. So um, that's what to expect for today. As always, we have new episodes of the show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, and all the audio podcast platforms like Spotify, Amazon, Apple, uh, Google, etc. So be sure to subscribe, check us out there as well, share this episode with anyone you think might be interested. So before we get to our guest, though, uh, Kyler, what are some of the uh, emerging technology trends that you, you've been seeing in the in the global space here over the last uh, few weeks? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, my, my first finding is a group of small to medium-sized businesses in Korea that actually got together to do some innovation around medical devices and diagnostics. So basically what they can do with their technology is create... Um, medical device analytics 
that can diagnose over 90% of whatever the image is capturing. So for example, if it's a chest x-ray, they can capture up to 94% of different um, chest diseases in that industry. So completely AI-led machine learning, that type of trend. So I wanted to kind of get your feedback, Eric, on if you think those more vulnerable services such as kind of health diagnostics will move towards kind of more of a robotics type of strategy um, with, you know, obviously a human oversight, which we talk a lot about in AI, but is that something you've seen kind of in the medical device community? I've, I've heard of it. I haven't seen it in real time practice yet. Um, but I, I do think to answer your question, the first part of your question, I do think that's where the industry is headed. And I think it's a good case study of how AI could be used in a, in a pretty meaningful way um, that could benefit a lot of people in society, as scary as it may be, because, you know, you, you think about something like a heart condition or, or a life-threatening disease of sorts, you know, do you trust a robot or a computer or, you know, artificial intelligence to figure that stuff out for you? Um, I would think longer term, it's got to, you know, as, as it's refined and, and uh, improved over time, I would think you're going to have a higher success rate and a higher accuracy rate from AI than you would humans because science is such a big, broad topic and so many disciplines and areas of specialty that I would think AI is going to be better suited uh, for that. So I, it seems like a perfect fit. But then again, I'm not the one that is uh, relying on a life or death situation. Uh, I'm not relying on AI for a life or death situation as we speak. So it, it's probably easier to say that than to actually move forward with that if you're in that, that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And what are your thoughts on um, a variety of companies coming together to create this innovation? Usually with technology, we see those types of almost secretive type of strategies. Have you ever seen in, you know, especially our, you know, our, our APAC area, um, a lot of times that's where technology is born. Have you ever seen kind of a group come together in this way to support this type of innovation? I've seen in the academic world, like in universities and uh, I think in university technology and health uh, settings, there's been other instances. I, I can't point to any specific ones off memory, but I do think that um, I've heard of that on the university setting. I haven't necessarily heard of for-profits. Are these for-profits? I, I missed the first part of that, or maybe you didn't say, but are these for-profit organizations that are? I don't know. Um, to be honest, I, I don't know if they're for-profit or if it's just... Um, it's just a pre-market product at this point that they're testing, but it sounds like they're for-profit businesses. Yeah. So, and I think like the, uh, you know, even just more recently, and we've talked about it on the show too, like the, the COVID vaccine, I believe that was done through partnerships, uh, that were, um, different drug companies and obviously partnering with, with different governments throughout the world to formulate that, uh, vaccine in a, in a record time. Um, so I think that might be another more recent example as well. So it seems like it's it's not totally uncommon to have that sort of coopetition or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and COVID is a great example too of kind of where you could have opportunities for AI, especially when it comes to things like testing and and we've seen like temperature checks go to technology based um, for companies and things like that to try and you know stop the spread of of COVID nineteen. So I think you know we'll see a lot more of that innovation in the medical industry, you know, we'll see a lot more of that innovation in the medical industry is um, clean energy. And, and especially after our global sustainability and climate change conference um, this week with so many different world leaders, 
Um, I wanted to ask you about kind of energy innovation because it it sounds really good, but a lot of energy innovation because it it sounds really good, but a lot of and saying, hey, you know, all of this is is great, but you have to remember where we get the raw materials, specifically here in the U.S. President Biden has said that he wants um, half of cars to all be run off of clean energy by 2030. And a lot of that has been kind of flagged as difficulties because things like ion lithium, lithium batteries, solar panels, those types of things are still outsourced. So I wonder from, you know, a, a U.S. perspective, if you could give us some feedback on what you think that is going to look like logistically um, in, in, in promoting clean energy. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question and a good point. I, I think that there's probably going to be more vertical integration in that uh, clean energy supply chain than maybe you've seen in other industries. And I think in general, uh, I think we may have talked about it in this podcast before, and I've, I've definitely talked about it in some of my uh, YouTube videos, kind of looking at, at predictions and trends for supply chain management in general. Um, that vertical integration, I think, is becoming more common as a mechanism to survive and, and to mitigate the risk of current supply chain. So in other words, if you own the supply chain, that's different than, or you have more control or you can't exert more control than if you are dependent on a third party that um, where you're sort of prioritized just as you would be any other customer, which may or may not uh, be enough for you to get timely materials. So I think that vertical integration, which would mean that these uh, clean energy companies are probably going to have to buy, for example, the the battery companies and whatnot. And I think some of the um, if I remember correctly, I thought there was a U.S. car company, I want to say it was GM or someone like that, General Motors or one of the big U.S. auto manufacturers. I think they bought a battery uh, manufacturer a while back, even before some of these supply chain issues started. So I think there's, a, if I remember correctly, I think there's some um, clean car companies that are already starting to do that. But I think in general, that industry is probably going to be dependent on some vertical integration to begin with, at least until the market is established and then you start to get other third-party players that can jump in and start to create niches and try to outperform you know that vertical vertically integrated supply chain and whatnot but uh it's hard to say but that would seem to make sense uh, from that perspective yeah no that that does make sense and and so do you think with the current climate of supply chain shortages challenges broken supply chains in knowing specifically that's with exports we you know see a backup at our ports we're really ports we're really struggling with global wide struggling with global wide shipping do you think that's something that will continue to be a main theme as we move towards cleaner products or businesses um, or or do we now have internet that that we're on yeah that's a you know where we are right now just looking in the short term i think that's where a lot of companies are going uh, worldwide they're trying to reshore more of their raw materials and pieces of their supply chain. Um, in fact, we did, that is something I know we talked about in last week's uh, panel discussion about supply chain management. And, and for those listening, uh, the last episode, which was episode number 43, was all devoted to, to supply chain management. So we had three different segments on different supply chain management topics, including uh, the middle segment, kind of the main segment was focused on a panel discussion. Um, and that is something that came up. But I think it's sort of like uh, the pendulum swinging, you know, for through the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, the pendulum was swinging clearly toward globalization and global supply chains. But uh, even before COVID, but now especially with COVID, um, the pendulum sort of starting to swing back. I don't think it'll, you know, I don't know that we'll necessarily get back to where, you know, each country is producing 
you know, all of its own materials. Cause I don't, first of all, I don't think that's possible because not every country has the, the resources to produce everything they need in their supply chains, but all things being equal that I think you're starting to see more companies that are sort of rethinking, um, the, the focus on lower cost at the expense of not having control over quality or timeliness or flexibility of the supply chain. I think companies are willing to pay a little bit more, uh, in their supply chains, even if, you know, onshoring is a more expensive option that still may be the best long-term answer if it gets, you know, provides that flexibility and speed that uh, organizations are missing right now in their supply chains. Absolutely. I think it's definitely something that, that it's hard to be a company and, and held to those expectations of, you know, being able to be a sustainable company and maybe as much as you want to, but it's difficult to really kind of look there. So maybe a, a slower evolution on that side um, than fast and and that's something that you know we'll continue to watch for sure because it's it's um, right up in there in in a initiative or a strategy from our government specifically here in the US and understanding how businesses are able to actually implement that um, for sure so one of the other things I um, found interesting is that Google just recently moved a lot of its operations to the Australian market I'm calling it the Silicon Valley of the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and then I wanted to get your reaction to that, knowing that Australia is actually the first company or the first country, excuse me, to actually make those bigger tech giants pay for utilizing their search results. Um, so I wanted to see kind of what your your reaction was to that, to seeing, you know, American-based businesses moving a substantial amount of their operations or resources overseas. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, as, as a, you know, a patriotic American, I guess you'd say, uh, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people listening are patriotic to their own home countries. You know, you want to see the jobs and the, and the technology and the opportunities stay in your country. Uh, but then again, you know, I'm all about, you know, wherever it makes sense to, to have your operations, you, you should do, cause that's going to help the company and, you know, the, the home, the home, uh, country better in the long term anyway. Um, it, what kind of is it more like? Did they say what kind of operations are moving? I'm just curious more. Than, and this is the consultant. They can't give you a straight answer without asking you a bunch of questions. <laughs> Seven hundred and forty million in U.S. dollars over the next year. So that basically is creating six thousand jobs and twenty eight thousand overall support positions um, within the Sydney economy. So a big move for that Australian piece, um, and then moving to, I think, just globalize their overall business. I think just globalize their overall business from a, a hub here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, it, it, they are a global company, and obviously the world relies on Google, so it's, it's not surprising that you would have these, these sort of global operations and global expansion of footprints. Um, so it is interesting, though, that you see these different countries like... Uh, I think for a while Ireland has been sort of a tech hub of, of within Europe, and you know you get these different tech hubs throughout the world. I think that that just further advances technology in general, and and uh, yeah, so I think it's it's inevitable, and it's probably a good thing longer term to see that that global footprint expand. Yeah, regulating tech—it's something that we really haven't um, been able to kind of pinpoint here over in the U.S. But like for example. Um, the competition regulator over there, which is similar to our monopoly legislations here and overall competition in the marketplace, 
um, called for Google to install a choice screen on their, their smartphone. So basically that you would, as a user, would be able to choose a different browsing system. Um, and, again, and again, requiring those big technology firms and requiring those big Google and Facebook to pay for news content on their platform and really kind of reinvesting that in the economy's um, audience. And if you email me your feedback at kyler.cheatham at thirdstage-consulting.com, um, we'll, we'll look at it on our next episode next week um, if you have any thoughts on that because we'd love to hear from our global audience. Yeah, you trigger a couple interesting thoughts though. I mean, it, it era, a memory jogger, I suppose, where, I, you know, I hadn't thought of it from the perspective of regulations and, you know, data privacy and things that, that Google and other big tech companies are having to deal with. Um, they're dealing with a increasing regulatory scrutiny and in, in the U S where I think there's been more lax rules for those big tech companies they're, they're, they're starting to tighten up those regulations. So I, I guess from that perspective, you think, the benefit of having most of your operations in the U.S. or having that sort of U.S. protection under under the legal system, with that somewhat going away, you know that that takes away that advantage of being in the U.S. So you know I could see that being a potential catalyst uh, for for driving some of that expansion of their operations into other other countries as well. Yeah, and I would have loved to be kind of a fly on the wall for that negotiation, right? Saying you know we're going to bring and stimulate jobs within your overall economy in Australia saying, well, you're still going to need to pay for, you know, on news sites and things like that. It would, it would have been really interesting because we really haven't, you know, um, started or pioneered kind of those negotiations here in the U S cause it's always been non-censored. Um, but not that Australia is censoring, but there's so much as, as saying that you, you do need to kind of pay to play here. So. Yeah. And that is, Part of the risk they're facing in the U.S. is the is the censoring. You know they they're mm-hmm. going to lose. I mean, it looks like they may lose some of the uh, legal liability protection they had by not being a not providing actual editorial content uh, as they had in the past. But now that they are taking a more active role in censoring information that you know they they deem to be inappropriate, um, that's causing the U.S. to say, okay, well then you're not going to get those protections anymore. Um, and so yeah, I could see that them. That, that would make sense that they'd want to rethink their dependency on the U.S. for their operations and protection and really looking more more internationally for sure. Absolutely. Well, again, we'll visit our Brisbane office over in um, Australia to in order to follow this very hot story. So stay tuned. <laughs> that is as long as Google or YouTube don't censor this video because we're talking about it. I, I hope this, uh, <laughs> hopefully this video doesn't get taken down because we're just talking about them. Um, all kidding aside though, that, that, uh, sounds good. Well, thanks for that, that update on the, on the, the news in the, in the space right now. That That's good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And so I have a few Thanksgiving theme. So Turkey costs are up over 30% from last year. And there is, um, they are 20% harder to find. So if you are short on turkey, you might have to, you know, do something else for Thanksgiving um, and what that looks like. So knowing that those those supply chains are backed up or meatflation, as we like to call it here, um, was released by the U.S. Department of Agriculture on Monday saying how difficult it is to truly get a turkey. It's... Um, it's up 
150 per pound and we haven't seen that increase since the 90s and economists also say that this will be the most expensive Thanksgiving we've ever seen here in the US because of those inflation prices. So I I really want you to solve this. so bottleneck Eric and tell us how we could I I really want you to solve potentially one yet. Well, first of all, I think it's crazy that the supply chain issues and inflation, which are two things that, you know, are top of mind for a lot of the world right now, in addition to COVID and uh, a number of other factors. But it, it's it's surprising to me that even turkeys are affected. That's something that you would think, how hard can it be? You know, the, 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 uh, the turkeys are, I would presume, primarily grown or, or harvested locally. Um, so it's not like we're relying on ships to bring the turkeys over or the meat over from other countries, I don't, I don't think, but maybe that maybe that maybe we're more dependent on that than I realized um, on the global scale. But um, you know, I think that you know the easy answer, or not the easy answers, but the common answers that we've talked about last week about just the supply chain in general probably apply here. Like uh, making sure that we're we're localizing as much of that turkey production as we can. So in other words, we may not be shipping coast to coast or you know throughout the country as much. It might be that we rely on more local or regionalized farmers to provide that product, but still doesn't fix the fact that you still have to get the turkeys from the farm to uh, wherever it's going. Even if it's a shorter distance, you still have to do something to get it there. So I don't know if it's uh, back to the, you know, the farmers for providing more of the transportation and logistics that maybe they haven't had to in the past or um, relying on, you know, more non-conventional ways of, uh, getting shipping and, and, and parcels and packaging and all that stuff uh, shipped to wherever it needs to go. Uh, but those are just some of the things that come to mind is, is primarily just moving moving everything closer to where the end product needs to get to uh, in the case of these, these turkeys. Absolutely. Um, well, if you want to come to my house, I saw about 30 turkeys. And so maybe we can help with that. But so lastly, Eric, on our Thanksgiving fun, last year we wrote a blog on if software vendor, we have three of them. We have the turkey, we have the potatoes, and we have the cranberries. So I want you to try and see if you can guess what vendor was the turkey, the potatoes, and the cranberries. Um, I'd say the turkey would be... Um... I'm going to go with SAP on that one uh, for a number of reasons. As for Hana, I don't know if that was uh, from your reaction. It doesn't look like that was the real answer in the blog. But I'm just going to say that because it's the biggest software vendor out there. Sometimes it's bloated, makes you feel sometimes it's too much. Uh, sometimes it's really expensive, just like turkeys, as we just talked about. And, you know, sometimes, uh, to be honest, sometimes SAP as an organization can be a bunch of turkeys, you know, the way they, the way they sell their software and, and uh, sort of oversell the capabilities and all that stuff uh, when it's a half-baked turkey, I, I would say, with S4HANA. Um, so that, so I'd, I'd pick on SAP for the, for the turkey, uh, the good and the bad of turkey. Yeah, well, you were close. It is another big one. If you're not SAP, you are? Uh, Oracle. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So Oracle was a turkey. Very, very good. So mashed potatoes, though. So to me, like mashed potatoes are, are delicious. So, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't necessarily have a, a favorite software vendor, but one that, that people really like. Um, I guess I'd go with like, I'd probably go with NetSuite as the mashed potatoes, which is an Oracle product. Um, 
the hardy potatoes think of like a very um, robust system but can also be flexible right? oh uh, oh yeah yeah um microsoft dynamics ding 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 yeah there we go yeah that's that's a that's actually a good one and again you know it's like uh yeah it's it's a it is a favorite as far i wouldn't say favorite but it just ranked highest on our on our top 10 i personally don't really care you know who's on, who's on top or not but I, i'm sorry to all the vendors out there who do care deeply who's on top uh but i but i really don't it's just more a matter of what our clients like and just the strengths and weaknesses that we see in the market but having said that i think that 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 is a good fit for for microsoft and that flexibility to eat too much of it or to change it too much like you can do a lot with mashed potatoes that maybe you shouldn't you could add stuff to it that you may not want to that's a lot like microsoft dynamics too people they they take advantage or abuse the uh, flexibility that the product offers and they make things more difficult for themselves oftentimes. If you're thinking about something that seems like complex, but it's kind of an outlier, kind of like the cool hip. As a, like an Odoo or something like that? Right? Like the open source, the cool trendy open source technology? Yes! Open source cranberries. So it's in Thanksgiving, but um, we're excited to celebrate the holiday and in here in the U.S. it's all about gratitude and we truly are grateful um, for you listening and um, you know, engaging with our content here. So, um, And speaking of, of gratitude, we have an awesome interview. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Amanda Patton is her name and she'll be on the show talking about a uh, consumer packaged good company that is a client of ours that we've helped through the software evaluation. We helped them pick the software. Now we're helping them implement the technology. And we're right in the throes of the implementation now. We're going to talk about the lessons learned from the trenches of that transformation. So we're going to bring on Amanda to talk through that and her experience so far. So we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be back uh, with that interview. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn a third stage consulting group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, your podcast for all things digital transformation. This is episode number 44, and you can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, as well as all the audio podcast platforms, whichever one you might be listening to. So I'm excited for our next guest, uh, Amanda Patton, who is a manager of strategy and transformation at Third Stage. I uh, invited her on the show. She's actually been on the show in the past. I think it was episode number two or three. It was really early on. She was, she was on early this year in one of the first episodes of Transformation Ground Control. And um, she's back to talk about another case study this time. This one is a transformation in progress. We're in the middle of it right now. And we wanted to talk to her about what are, what are some of the things she's experiencing right now, some, some of the lessons, some of the things that are going well, some of the things that aren't going so well, and uh, what can we take away from that. So we wanted to have her on the show for that reason. And just a fun fact, Kyler, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, 
Amanda is not only one of our great talented team members, but it's also the first song on the album Third Stage that I got the idea for the name for the for the company Third Stage. So actually that's it right behind me. If you're watching the video, you can see the album cover right over my shoulder. That is the album from Boston called Third Stage, and the first song on it is called Amanda. So it's only fitting that we would have an Amanda uh, on the show and on our team. Uh, it, it kind of fits. So um, so yeah, so all that being said, uh, Amanda, welcome to the show. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And you've been you've been on the podcast before, but it's been a while. You were on one of the early, early episodes of Transformation Ground Control, so it's good to, good to have you back on here. Glad um, to be back. Yeah, and you're going to talk about a, d a different project, I believe, this time than, than what we talked about uh, before, or it might maybe it was the same project. Was, was it? It, the, it feels I, like I don't remember. <laughs> I don't it was know. Several months ago, so now I, now no. I don't remember. But either case, uh, we're going to a lot has changed. If it was the same uh, project we talked about before, uh, this is a project that you've been working on uh, for for some time with with us. But um, yes. I guess before. Before we start asking about the the client and a little bit about the the company, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, just a little bit about your background and, and what you do at Third Stage in general. Okay, uh, sure. Well, let's see. Um, I've been around the software world, I guess, for the past eight to ten years in different capacities. Um, was with IFS, so on the vendor side, and did uh, global analyst relations. Was an industry manager. Um, and the strategic alliances lead. And so over the years did different roles, which was really cool because I got to see the whole entire process from different vantage points and learned um, a lot um, just from, you know, selection and, you know, how customers select and how they implement and what that all looks like. So it's pretty cool to have kind of a mixed bag of, of skill sets from, you know, in that regard. And then at third stage, um, uh, you know, we tend to kind of wear multiple hats around here and work on really cool collaborative teams and people bring, you know, a diverse set of, of skill sets. And uh, the majority of the projects that I'm on, I'm really doing project management um, overall, do some analysis and a lot of, you know, that kind of thing from organizational readiness and the selection process and that kind of thing. But really project management is kind of my uh go to here lately especially on the last few projects i've been on great so you've, you'll have a unique perspective that a lot of us don't have just having worked for uh, a software vendor in the past and you've sort of been on the other side of the table and it'll uh, be interesting to get your perspectives as we talk here today uh, sort of you know how that what that contrast is you know between being on this side versus the vendor side and, and uh, understanding those challenges in a different way having been on that side yes yes or, i know all their secrets so <laughs> right the dirty little secrets of yes. uh, being a vendor. Yes. So, so tell us a little bit about this this client. I know we can't mention him by name, obviously, for confidentiality purposes. But just tell us a little bit, you know, at a high level, kind of what is the the lay of the land as far as um, as far as the company itself. You know, what do they do? How big are they? All that good stuff. Right. So um, they are consumer goods, as you as you have mentioned, um, a mature, you know, established company, uh, mid size enterprise. And they sell direct to consumer and a lot of business to business as well. Um, I don't know. I can't go into too much more detail, I guess, without right. without revealing, you know, um, identities. So yeah, that's pretty much the overview. Okay, and they're they're very well established as as in they've been around for centuries. You know, exactly. Not, yes, not ten or twenty years, but hundreds. Very of years. mature. Very very mature. <laughs> yeah, which is, um, and which I'll talk about a bad thing. Exactly. And, I, and I'll, I'll kind of talk a little bit about that more as we as we get into um, 
the interview. But um, as you can imagine, you know, there's just a lot of um, legacy, um, old processes, old technologies, old, old ways of doing things. And um, also the economy and the way that we do business and the way that be consumers behave and the way that they purchase things. And just, you know, that whole entire world has shifted. Um, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of change going on, you know, um, within this company just because of all of the evolutions they've they've gone through. So and then with COVID, it's like a whole nother, you know, fast tracked um, evolution. So, right. Well, t well, tell us a little bit about the the transformation itself that they're going through as an organization, and, and sort of where are they in that journey? Maybe maybe start from you know how we started working with them and kind of leading up to where we are today, how would you sort of summarize that journey so far? So they had gotten to the point, a lot of companies get to where the technology they had and the processes they had were um, not only not um, ideal, but we're starting to actually hold them back, right? And so um, they came to us with, we just need help, right? We need help understanding what we don't know, um, what's available to us, you know, looking at our current state, um, comparing it against other manufacturers, you know, in similar, you know, industries and size. Um, and so that's really where it started. And we began with them with an organizational readiness assessment to really understand where they are um, around, you know, technology, process, change. This is a really, really old system, uh, legacy, green screen, everything's really manual. And um, it's almost like if you haven't been there for a long time and don't your head, it would be really, really hard to come in off the street and use the technology to be able to do your job. Um, and so, you know, that causes issues with, you know, accuracy, training, all of that kind of thing, um, especially as you bring kind of in a younger, more tech savvy workforce, people expect for their systems at work to reflect, um, you know, the way we do things in our regular lives, using our phones and, and that kind of thing. So um, there was just a huge disconnect between what they have and what they want to have. Um, it started the... Uh, selection process, right, where we go out and we start that, of course, with the process workshops where it's this, you know, painstaking, but really cool and exciting um, exploration with the teams across, you know, sales, customer service, production, across all the big um, functional areas, you know, taking a step by step, what exactly do you do and really laying out that in the way of, you know, process maps and that, which helps us to really understand what are the requirements. Um, what is current state? Not what you want people to think it is, but what it actually is. Um, and then what's future state, right? Where are we going? Where do we want to be? And what do we need from a process and technology perspective to be able to get there? Um, and then running the actual selection, right? Uh, doing analysis on all of the uh, requirements and doing the demonstrations and having customer the customer weigh in on scoring those demonstrations. Um, and then having two top vendors, um, sometimes it's more, but in this case it was two, and um, they basically have a showdown and compete for the business. And then um, we had a winner, of course, and then now we are deep into the implementation, right? The design phase, we're getting ready to do user acceptance testing, um, and we're a couple months from go live. So we're, we're pretty well into the project now. 
Nice. Yeah, very, very interesting. It's uh, sort of like getting a getting a lay of the land and understanding who they are and what they're trying to be in the future, so that we can figure out what what system or systems would would be the best fit for them. Um, exactly. So, so we're see so that was a good overview of sort of where they are in the process. What what sort of triggered or or initiated this this whole uh, transformation? What type of technology? You know, we try to be pretty vendor agnostic. We are vendor agnostic as an organization, but in these discussions and, and podcasts, we try to be uh, fairly vendor agnostic and not you know bash any one vendor or be overly positive about any any vendors in general. But what what can you tell us about the type of solution that they ended up uh, that we ended up recommending and that they ended up uh, implementing? Um, yes, I'm not going to get too specific, but I will just say, a, a, you know, a, it's a, it's a solution that's built for manufacturing, right? Um, and so you have all of the functionality that you would expect, uh, for that type of company, um, and all the bells and whistles that you would expect to find, uh, for someone who, for a company who manufactures. So, um, you know, a lot of, manufacturers tend to be um, on premise and there's been a huge shift, right? Or there is, I guess we're kind of in, in it now where, you know, people are trying to modernize their systems and people are going to the cloud and there's all these big questions and there's a lot of, um, you know, it's hard to leave behind all of the things that they're kind of used to. And so it, it was even a huge uh, change management component, I guess, or the beginnings of it where it's such the, the delta is so massive between green screen, you know, hotkeys and all the things that people do and have been doing forever to this modern, um, you know, where things are more icons and it's just, it's just very different. Right. So I think it was off putting, but also exciting um, for them. But, you know, the vendors we pulled in obviously were based on who can satisfy the requirements. Um, so, so for them, it was, it was pretty much all uh, manufacturing centric uh, technologies solutions. Right. So they end up with a sort of a tier two industry focused solution rather than, you know, it wasn't an SAP or an Oracle or a Microsoft, you know, sort of one of those big uh, broad vendors is more of a, a focus solution. Right. And I think that would have been over-engineered for them given their size and, and what they're trying to do anyway. So, yeah. 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 Okay. So um, in the process so far, I guess where, first of all, where in the, in the implementation are we right now in helping them? So what, what phase of the overall implementation or kind of what's next? What are some of the immediate milestones we have coming up? So last week, actually, we just finished the end to end, uh, just the full, you know, um, to end and um, we're getting into now uh, preparing for UAT um, and really the specifics of, you know, writing all the scripts for the user acceptance testing, make sure it's not boilerplate, right? That we have really specific nuances to this particular client understanding that they do have a secret sauce. They do have ways they do things that, that differentiate them uh, from their competitors. And so, um, you know, getting into looking at what happened in the end to end, what's working, what's not massive, massive decades upon decades worth of data are being is being continually um, deduped and scrubbed and reformatted and, and just all of that. Right. And so a lot of that's getting moved over from pilot to production. There's just a lot of those types of things as we prepare to be able to test. Um, 
but that's where we are now, right? Deep preparation for um, user acceptance testing. Okay. Yeah. So you're, this is where a lot of the rubber meets the road and a lot of the challenges yes. and hiccups and all that sort of stuff starts to get exposed really is, is during that end to end process design. And then the, the user acceptance testing, as you mentioned, right. what are some of the challenges that we've seen so far, you know, just kind of looking at where we are in the, in the journey with them right now, what are, what are some of the biggest challenges we're facing now or that we face uh, so far leading up to now? Well, um, like I said earlier, and this continues to just be a theme, it, it's just a massive change, right? Um, legacy green screen, essentially uh, very manual, um, institutional knowledge kind of thing. And very, um, you've got to go in and mine for data and like build custom report. You know, it's not the way we're used to where you can just go query for what you want. You know, there's just a lot of so um, I think one of the biggest challenges is like not knowing what they don't know. And with each iteration of these design and configuration sessions and these conversations, and then all the sidebar conversations happening around business processes and like what needs to change and why does it need to change? And does everyone agree that it needs to change? And also not operating in their own little silos, but making sure that that everyone had this broad view across all the teams of like, if we make this change, this is going to impact this over here. What does that mean from a process perspective, technology perspective? Um, so I think that's one of the huge challenges is just um, you're asking an entire corporation to recalibrate and shift perspective um, individually and collectively, which is, you know, it's, it's a lot to ask. Um, there's also the stress of learning an entirely new system, right? That looks nothing like what you're used to. Um, if you're going from one modern ERP to another, it's probably not that big of a, an adjustment, right? But when you're going from, you know, legacy uh, to what they're going to be using, it's been huge. Um, we've also had a lot of, you know, um, Issues with the vendor that's caused uh, heartburn. Um, some of these things can't really be predicted. It just depends on who the team is, uh, the consultants that are deployed from the vendor side, uh, the project manager, their product roadmap, what changes they're going on, what changes they have going on behind the scenes. And um, so making sure that you know we as the uh, neutral party right in the overall project that we are advocating for the customer that we are kind of giving the vendor a really hard time sometimes when they're not doing what they said they were going to do um in the sales cycle it was said like this this is what we're actually seeing um what's the deal creating mitigation plans asking for you know rebates or things like that. Um, just making sure because look, the customer, they have a full-time job to be doing for one thing. They have a day job to like keep the company running. They also now have a, a part to full-time depending on their role in the project uh, on this implementation. The last thing they, you know, they, they could be working 60, 80 hours a week for a period of time to get this thing implemented, depending on their involvement. Um, the last thing they have time to do or the capacity to do is go chase down the you know, things that the vendor said that aren't necessarily happening the way they should be. So it's really good to have a neutral uh, party um, because like we've talked about before, you know, at some point we roll off of these projects. This is a long-term relationship between the client and the vendor. 
And so I am always working to make them, you know, get them to communicate with each other. Um, and I will be, you know, the bad cop or whatever. I'm happy to do that. Um, but to have that communication, to know who to escalate to, you know, who do I go to? Where do I submit a ticket? How do I, how do I make sure that this has been, you know, resolved, those kinds of things. And um, there are just so many people involved that that can get really, really um, chaotic very quickly. So, you know, that's, I think that's one of the main things right now. All right. Great stuff. Thanks, Amanda. We're going to take a quick break and I've got a bunch more questions for you when we come back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling and I'm here with Amanda Patton. We're talking about a case study of a manufacturer that's going through a digital transformation. So let's jump right back into the conversation. So we, you and I were talking before we, we went uh, live here, we were talking about how um, we're working with the vendors direct services group. So in yep. other words, we're, we're not using a third party VAR or a system integrator. This is actually the, the vendor itself providing the technical resources uh, to manage the implementation, which in theory, you'd think that should be an easier more smooth sailing process because you're dealing directly with the vendor. You know, we're getting resources straight from the vendor um, right. who better to know the product than the vendor themselves. Um, and so in theory, it should be a easier process or you should in theory have better resources because of that now, but that ne hasn't necessarily been the case, has it? I mean, there's been some challenges that we've had, that we've had that, that we haven't, that we do see often, but we don't see them with all of our implementations. We, you and I were talking about another implementation you're involved with where it's like just a totally different experience. Right. What right. are some of the challenges with the vendor? Like what are some examples of um, challenges we've run into with the vendor themselves? So to your point, every single project is completely unique, right? It's because it deals with human beings and, and um, you know, different technologies, different deployment teams. And so every single one is completely different. Um, and I was under the same impression as well, because you would think that, you know, people who are employees of the vendor, um, that that would be better, right? It would be closer to the source instead of having a bunch of, you know, outsourced um, things. But, you know, what's ended up happening is that there's just a lot of disjointed um, disorganization, you know, miscommunication. A lot the vendor has going on behind their own scenes has caused a lot of pain for the customer. Um, there are a lot of upgrades and, uh, you know, just just a lot going on with their product roadmap. Let me just say that. And right. so um, those changes are causing glitches and delays and confusion 
uh, for the process of the implementation for the client, right? Because you know how everything is, you know, you've got this critical path, you've got all these dependencies. And so if this thing gets messed up, well, now we've got to rework all, you know, so um, if you, if somebody, that's one of the issues we've had with this vendor is that they've laid things out and then those things are continually changing. It's like chasing a moving target. And it's really difficult um, when, like I said, you've got people over here trying to learn a new system. They're trying to write new processes for future state of their company. Um, they're trying to work their day jobs. <laughs> and so, and their their schedules are, are really full, right? And so it's just caused a lot of extra, um, uh, you know, heartburn. Another thing too, I don't know if you've ever, you know, called customer service somewhere and you've been transferred 17 times and you've had to tell your story over every single time. Right. Um, even though the person says like, yeah, I'm going to put this in the notes. Um, that has sort of been the experience for the customer as well, as well right? Even though you have, um, client, uh, these are, you know, employees of the vendors. It's not like it's a new outsourced team or some third party team. This is all, you know, people who work for the vendor. But every time they come on to talk about building out a new module or a new, you know, component, um, we've had quite a few experiences where the cloud environment hasn't been spun up yet, right? Oh, we thought you were on-prem. Um, sorry, we need two weeks now to spin up the uh, cloud environment so we can do this training and this configuration, things like that. We don't have two weeks, right? Um, also, that pushes so many other things back now. Um, and then just kind of the the thing where you get on the phone and you expect your um, if you're the client, you expect the vendor to know who you are, what you do, how big you are, where you're located, you know, your whole story and the fact that you're on the cloud and that you're using this product and that, you know, and that just has been missing. Um, right. It's almost like they have to tell their story from the beginning every single time. And that obviously hurts confidence. It makes people feel worried. It makes people feel like, is this implementation going to go well? What's going to happen on go live? It doesn't seem like they're really paying attention uh, to what we want and what we need. So that's been a huge frustration. And like I said, you have, um, I would say, I'm trying to remember from the organizational readiness assessment. I think it was 89, 90% of the people who work for this company have never been through an ERP implementation ever. So this process, the methodology, all the meetings, all the acronyms, all the, just the language, everything about it is completely foreign, right? Um, and so people are already a little bit, um, you know, just worried and insecure. It's a new experience for them. I think that's completely normal. And it doesn't help when the vendor shows up and seems like they don't know what's going on, right? It's really yeah. frustrating, so. Yeah. Now you you had mentioned too, um, you were talking a few minutes ago about the, or just now you were talking about the different modules, you know, you, you're setting up different modules and all the all that goes into that. So you've got, so many dimensions of things to think about from a technology or a software perspective here. You have the, the, the different modules you're going to use, whether it's cloud or on-prem and a lot of things are specific to that solution. But then there's also in this case, and in many cases with a lot of our clients, there's third party bolt-ons that go along with that to, to fill in some of the voids with the product roadmap to your point earlier. Right. Uh, if, they, if this product doesn't have certain functionality, we don't have it, but here's a third party option that could sort of fill that gap. There's been issues with that as well, have there not? Or, or what are some of those challenges with, with those third-party apps and how it all sort of comes together? 
Yes. Um, lack of communication, again, um, finding out at this stage in the process that things that were bought, you know, uh, in the sale, in the sales process now, oh, well, that's being, we're sunsetting that. Um, we're coming out with this, this new thing to replace it, but it's not going to be available um, to work with single sign-on in a cloud environment until June of next year. And so you're like, well, what are, what are they supposed to do between go live and, and when that happens? And so again, um, lack of communication, um, maybe even from, you know, the product people to the sales team, maybe the sales team didn't know about this during the sales process. I'm not saying there was any malice or like intentional misleading going on. It's just, um, you know, in my mind and the reason we're, we're here and we're vendor agnostic is because we advocate for the client. We are here for the client. That's where my loyalty lies. And so um, it's frustrating when those types of things are being revealed so late in the process, because then you have to go back to the drawing board and say, OK, well, do we really need this functionality? Do we really need it day one? Um, how critical is it? Um, and trying to figure you know, out kind of workarounds, really, to make sure that the functionality is available. The other thing too is what they purchased initially in the sales cycle to cover that particular functionality that I'm referring to. Um, the the new product is going to be more expensive, right? So then there's a hit to the budget as well. And so um, and then maybe potentially some APIs and some other you know work that has to go on behind the scenes to make it work because now it's a different so Again, it's never it's never one thing it ends up going down 50 different rabbit holes because it's connected to so many other components of the project. So, um, yeah, we've had quite a few issues with with modules that were um, bolt ons that actually serve really important functionality that the client needs. So, um, again, you know we're now talking about UAT and we've got all these scripts and we're getting everybody ready and we're doing all the training around that, making sure that the data is there and that all the EDI work is being done and um, talking about cutover planning and getting really, really granular about what that's going to look like during that time. Um, and so we need to be focused on those things. And instead we've gotten dragged back sometimes um, to kind of go rework some of these modules and things. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, you had also mentioned a moment ago, you were talking about the organizational readiness and how 89 or 90% of the, the employees had never been through an implementation. And then you throw in some of these curveballs we're talking about that are vendor specific and uh, related to the third party bolt-ons and just some of the confusion around the, the product itself and which modules and bolt-ons are, are going to be required. But what about um, just the whole challenge, I guess the whole, um, the fact that this is such a mature organization that's well-established, which is good news, bad news, I suppose, when they're going through a change like this, the, the good news is that you have a, a certain amount of um, maturity around certain processes and certain things you do that are strengths as an organization. But when it comes time to change those things or to go through a transformation like this, the bad news is it, it can be a lot more difficult for a well-established organization to go through the changes just because of that. Um, things are so well-baked into the DNA of the organization that it's a lot harder to change. What, what are some of the biggest organizational change challenges or signs of resistance have you seen as it relate, relates to the process changes or moving to a modern cloud-based ERP system versus that that legacy system? What are some of the sort of the, how, how's that going so far from what you're seeing at this point in the project? 
I will say we're turning a corner. Um, I'll put it like that. Early on, it was people are um, it's human nature, right? You're attached to the way that you do things and protective over your process and your data and the fact that you own this and other people don't touch it. And, you know, this is how we uh, do things. I think too, when you have somebody who's been, who's been doing it this way for 30 years, and that's not an exaggeration. There are people who've been doing it this way on this system for 30 years. Um, you know, there's a, there has been a little bit of a mindset of why, why do we need to change it? You know, it's fine. Um, and, and so, that's not a bad thing. And you talk about this all the time in your, you know, your podcasts and, and blogs and all that of, of, um, you know, people aren't necessarily trying to be resistors. Um, it's just a natural part of the process. And so, um, for, I think for this particular client, one of the hardest things besides just the huge change from the type of technology they're using to where they're going is the internal processes, right? Um, having pretty passionate discussions sometimes internally about this is why we do it like this and other people or newer people or whatever, uh, people in different areas, well, that doesn't make sense. That's not how we, that's not how people do it anymore. Um, and so some of those conversations have been revisited. I'm not kidding. Seven or eight times right? Subsequent meetings, you got to pull in more people, we've got to reevaluate this and um, looking at, you know, well, why do we use LIFO? And why do we, why do we do it like this? And why are there four different, four extra steps in this process when really all we need, and this is the whole crux of the issue is that they don't know what the new technology is capable of. So they don't know that a lot of these manual steps that are part of their process are going to be obsolete. And you can't know that until you've played with and tested and seen your new system in action. Um, and so there's a little bit of, you know, trust. And like I said, every iteration of the UAT and them getting to get in there and play around and, and see it, like, oh, okay, well, it did it automatically, or this is automated now, or I don't have to slice and dice these 17 reports eight different ways for 15 different people, because that's sort of the way it is now, right? You're you're pulling vast amounts of data, you're putting it into Excel, you're doing a million different things because all these people need different things. And in future states, it's not going to be like that. There won't be a need for that, right? There's going to be custom dashboards and there are reports um, you can query. There are all kinds of things that you can do to, to do that. But if you've never seen that kind of system or worked in that kind of system, you don't know. So I think that's one of the, the biggest change management um, issues is telling people this is what it's going to be like and they don't believe you. <laughs> You know, and yeah. so um, but like I said, the more because initially when people are in there playing around in the training modules and those types of things, it's kind of it falls flat um, because it's not real. But now that their data is in there and they see their customer names and they see their sales orders and they see, you know, now it's starting to all make sense. Like, OK, this is really starting. I'm really starting to understand how this works. Um, so that's been a pretty steep um, learning curve. And, and, um, I think too, just being patient with people, you know, and understanding that change is hard. 
you know, and not trying to shame someone or make them feel like, come on, you know, get with it. It's, it's, everyone has a very different reaction and different experience. Um, I think too, it's always normal for people to start to think, hmm, this system seems to do a lot of what I do for my job. Right. right? And people are like, what, you know, and that's kind of one of the points of, you know, this type of system is to get people away from having to be in the weeds all the time and do so much manual work so people can focus on more strategic uh, forward looking initiatives. Right. Instead of being caught up in the in the work of all this manual stuff when you're bogged down with an old system. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Great stuff. Thanks, Amanda. We're going to take a quick break and I've got a bunch more questions for you when we come back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling, and I'm here with Amanda Patton. We're talking about a case study of a manufacturer that's going through a digital transformation. So let's jump right back into the conversation. You mentioned something interesting that, that just triggered another sort of a sub question here is, is you were talking earlier, but just a second ago about LIFO, like, you know, last, which for those that don't know, last in first out way of valuing um, or costing inventory. Um, and it's also an inventory management uh, process too. But are there other like, can you give us a couple examples of other impacts to the organization, like other things like that that are sort of being challenged or their mindset shifts for the organization or for different team members, no matter how small they may be, you know, just maybe just, do you have any, any examples of, like that? Um, I think, you know, one of the things is the okay I'm, I'm trying not to get too specific so i don't you know reveal anything that i'm not supposed to reveal but um what are the um kind of rules right in terms of customizations or this customer wants this and that's been one of the huge things when you're as old as this company is and you have as many longtime loyal customers as they do you have a lot of exceptions right for customers this customer only can have blue ink on their um, packing slip or you know this customer doesn't want this packaged with that it has to be separated out and these plastic sleeves have to be labeled in a different way because of how they receive inventory or, or whatever um, special custom orders um, that a lot of companies would just say no to right because it doesn't make sense at that volume it doesn't make sense for them financially to fulfill those types of things but this custom this company does those things 
um, without exception because they're customer centric. And so a lot of it has been around the rules um, of what's allowed and what's not allowed and setting, you know, um, parameters around what's going to work for the business model and and across customer service, sales, uh, production, you know, um, there were these kind of arguments about this may be better for the company from a convenience standpoint, but we don't care because we're always going to do what's best for our customer. And so um, those are, you know, those are some examples. And like I just said, like, you know, the color of ink or the way things are packaged or, you know, just teeny tiny details that may not seem that important um, in the grand scheme of things, but to them they are because they have really a really, really loyal customer base. Um, trying to think of some other just small um, process things. I'll think of something. It'll come to me. <laughs> no, that's a good one. I mean, but it, but it's a good, um, I mean, even just the minute example of the color of ink, you know, on a, on a invoice or a packing, what a packing slip looks like, or how you, um, you know, how you separate the materials into different, uh, I forgot how you said it, but how you, how you package things for specific customers. You look at that in, in a software vendor would probably look at that and say, well, that's not best practice. Our software has best practice, which is right. a more consistent way of doing things. And so that's what drives me crazy about that term best practices, because in this case, you look at this client and say, well, is that best practice? You know, the way the software works, is that really best practice when you have this customer centric uh, customer experience that you're, you're focused on? Um, and those two things are oftentimes in conflict. And so you've got to, you know, resolve that and say, well, are we going to be, are we going to focus on efficiency and standardization and common processes? Or are we going to retain that sort of customer centric model that we have? And I think that's where a lot of a lot of companies struggle is like, what's, what's the right answer yeah. there? Yeah. And if you don't know, if you don't know ERP speak and, and you don't know what a future um, state looks like with this new system, you may just be able to be pulled around by the vendor, right? If they tell you, you should do this, maybe you just do it because you don't know, you're not sure. And so you think, well, they're the experts, I guess we'll just do whatever they're saying. But, um, you know, and like you always, you say this a lot in your, you know, stuff that you do is is about you've got to know what makes you special right mm -hmm. and sometimes yes there's a lot of best practices that can be applied across the board um but those are probably going to be pretty similar for most um in that particular industry but if you know that something makes is a, is a key differentiator and um you know is the reason why your customers keep coming back then regardless of best practice or not, or what the vendor thinks about it, you know your business better than anyone. Like a vendor can't tell you how your business is on a day-to-day -day basis. You're the one who knows it. You do it every single day. So you have to be the source of those decisions. And, um, you know, would it be easier to go with best practice to make things more convenient for the company? Yes. At the expense of their customer experience, though, which they're not willing to do, right? Which is why they're so successful. So, you know, you have to you have to pick and choose those things, and sometimes those things require customizations, right? And that costs a little bit more money, and it's going to take a little bit more time. But in the end, it's important for this customer to be able to do that for their this client to be able to do that for their customers. Um, you know, and there's all these little conversations about backflushing. Should we be backflushing? Should we auto invoice? There's price breaks. Where should the price break happen? Um, we have, you know, they're putting out catalogs with new pricing. 
Um, but these old customers are grandfathered in at this rate for all of eternity, right? And all of that has to be accounted for in the software. So I think that's that's really what it is, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's uh, good stuff. Now, how in general, I don't know if you have a good answer for this yet, just because I know we're in the middle of things. But if, if you do have a good answer for this, I'd be curious to see what you think. Um, when you look at the um, sort of that, that, call it attention or a trade-off between sort of vanilla software deployment and sort of what the software can do off the shelf versus business processes and um, you know, some of the stuff you were just talking about, some of the some of the um, variations and exceptions and things that are focused on making the customers happy. Right. Assuming those two things are in conflict often, sort of where where's the needle? Is the needle shifting? Which way is it going? Like how how is that? How do you see that unfolding so far? Because I'm always curious about that because I feel like that's such a key point of tension. That's hard to get alignment as an organization on where you want to fall. And to your point, the vendor is probably pushing you more towards the the vendor focused or the product focused answer. And that may or may not be the right business answer. So how do you see, I don't know if you have a good way to explain like where you think this customer is and where they're headed on that front. Um, it's We are in the thick of it right now. So I can report back later. Sure, <laughs> um, sure. But a big part of it is so like, for example, right when when we started taking inventory of, OK, here's everything out of the box. Here's what we know, future state. Here's what we learned in end to end. Here's what we've learned in the build sessions that we've been in um, and all the subsequent conversations that needed to happen around uh, business process. We, I think, came out with 83 um, customizations, right, whether those be forms, uh, BPMs, um, reports, dashboards, like any type of customization, right? And so the process right now that we're going through is is pretty painstaking, long conversations about, um, is it something that we really need? Is it something we need right now? Um, are we sure that the out-of-the-box functionality doesn't address this? We just haven't looked at it in the right way yet, right? And so it's just that exploration of all of that. Of those 83 customizations, probably for phase one uh, for go live, there'll probably be about eight to 10 that get um, moved forward. And so um, it's it's not straightforward. Um, a lot of time the vendor wants to make it seem like it's straightforward, you know, like it's like, oh, we'll just do this, right? Well, no, that's not going to work. And so, of course, that sets off a lot of other conversations. And it's been a really good exercise, I think, in the company really better understanding themselves and each other and where they've been, where they are now and where they want to go. Um, even though everyone's agreed that future state is where they want to be and be able to project trends and get better with like the whole Amazon world and, you know, selling directly to consumers and 3PLs and all the, you know, all the new things that have come in. Um it's it's still this when people get worried or afraid or confused, we we want to go back to what we know. Right. And so there's it's like a rubber band and it's depending on the day. Right. We can be anywhere on that spectrum. But I think the more that these conversations happen, um, they take a lot of time. And yeah, the easy thing is just to do just to do what the vendor says. Right. OK, let's just shove you guys into a box that. Um, the functionality says that you should be in. Sometimes that makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, so I think it's been a really good exercise. It's been very um, eye-opening, I think, as departments understand what other departments are dealing with 
and kind of what that looks like. And there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of a bunch of uh, learning opportunities that they've had across different functional areas. Um, so, yeah, I don't have a direct answer. Sure. <laughs> it's no, in flux. Awesome. It's in flux. Yeah. Well, that's super helpful because, you know, a lot, I think you said it well when you said, you know, vendors do try to kind of force you into a box. And I think for, for a lot of organizations, you want to assume that whatever product or technologies you're deploying is the best fit of, of what, you know, what options are out there in the marketplace. In this case, it sounds like, you know, this probably is the best fit product for this client, but that doesn't mean it's a perfect fit. And it doesn't mean that the vanilla off the shelf software is going to address all of their needs. There are going to be things that are going to have to change on the technology side. And certainly the organization itself is going to have to change to adapt to the software. So it's sort of a two, uh, two prong um, change approach. But I think a lot of vendors would, you know, they, to your point, they, they tend to oversimplify things and say, well, just do it the way the software does it. Well, it's easy to say when you're a software vendor, cause that that's all, you know, and exactly. uh, you don't have to live with the consequences day to day once you go live on that new system. And I think that's where, you know, I think it's good that some of those painstaking conversations are happening right now, cause that's a way to work through and make sure you've got clarity and alignment on what is it we can live with? What can't we live with? What do we need to change ourselves? Right. What do we need to change in the software and all that stuff? Yeah. And I think it's good that we're, you know, that's, that's where third stage comes in is sort of that neutral party that can see across all the, you know, the whole entire project across the different dynamics and people jockeying for power and just all the different dynamics that are going on, which is just normal um, human nature and being willing to have those difficult conversations and, you know, not get too far into the weeds, but deep enough to where, okay, this, this is not going to work for us the way we need it to. And just having the vendor be accommodating, you know, and, um, you don't have to, you don't have to get a custom built house. Um, but if you move into a house that's already been built and it's builder's grade, um, it works, you know, the light fixtures work and the stuff works, but it may not be exactly what you want. And I think that's the process we're going through is like, it, it's okay, but it's not going to do it the way we need it to be done. Um, and then having that discussion about, is it worth the extra money? Is it worth the extra time? Do we need the customization? What is, what if we wait until phase two and let phase one really play out and just see how we're doing after go live for a few months. And then we can do a reassessment around some of these. And I think those 83 items are going to get moved at eight to 10. And then the rest of them maybe will be pushed, uh, for a while, because like I said, they don't know yet what it's going to be like, um, in the real world on their new system. So, um, having, having the patients and then of course having the processes written for workarounds and manual um, things in case something doesn't work right being prepared for everything so right. right all right great stuff thanks amanda we're gonna take a quick break and i've got a bunch more questions for you when we come back with more transformation ground control if you are aiming for transformation success turn a third stage consulting group Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.
Hello and welcome back to Transformation of Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling and I'm here with Amanda Patton. We're talking about a case study of a manufacturer that's going through a digital transformation. So let's jump right back into the conversation that the client and us are, are facing here. What um, what what are some of the, the biggest takeaways you would you would leave for a team that's about to go through a similar sort of transformation? You know, are there lessons specific to this client, this project that you'd say, you know, here's some key takeaways or things to think about as you embark on your own transformation journey. How much time do we have? <laughs> you know, we could spend a whole hour just on that, but, but how would you summarize a couple of those things that, uh, you know, the, the most immediate or highest priority things that, that come to mind? Um, I would say to allow more time than you think it's going to take. That's, that's a big one. Um, and, and I've already alluded to it several times. That means internal discussions across all teams. Um, leaving that extra time to discover and explore things that are going to come up. I don't care how well planned out it is, there will be surprises and speed bumps in the road. And so having the time um, set aside for that. Um, you also have to have time to let the steering committee and the board, um, right? Because that can take forever to get on people's calendars, the, to track them down, to let them look over the information. You may have to present the information to them so that they can go make a decision um, when it's really stuff that really has to be decided at a super high level. Um, that that has, you know, costs more time than than we anticipated in some cases. Um, UAT scripts, the data migration plan, again, more time than you would think. Right. So put a 20 percent, you know, insurance layer in there of time, because like we've talked about, people have full time day jobs. They now have a ton of hours being added for the implementation. And so finding the time that we need for all these deep conversations, sometimes that we have to have, it's really difficult to do. In fact, you know, sometimes we're doing it at night or on weekends because it's, there's just no there's no other time. Right. Um, what else? Um, the EDI hardware, hardware definitely, especially right now with our global supply chain being clogged. That's that's a fun little surprise of um, it's taking how long <laughs> to right. get the scanners, you know, the scan guns and the printers and everything. Right. You can't you, you've got to have that stuff for go live. And so having months of lead time um, is really important, especially right now. Um, luckily, we were prepared for that. So we're good. But if we hadn't been, we might be in trouble. Um I think having an extensive plan with every line item laid out, who's responsible when it's due, um, even if we're just coming in, even if third stage is just coming in from a QAPM perspective, I still like to have everything covered. Um, so because we have our team, we have the system integrator, we have the vendor, we have the client team. It's a lot of teams, a lot of teams with a lot of lenses and a lot of deliverables going on. And so being able to track all of that, which is what I do, I want to track everything. Um, the it, For this one in particular, I would talk about, you know, wanting to understand the vendor's roadmap. And um, if they're going through a huge upgrade or they have a lot going on behind the scenes, knowing ahead of time before you sign a contract, what does this mean? What does this look like? And getting really specific and kind of beating them up on, you know, getting answers, you know, definitive answers. Um, any products that are being sold during the sales cycle, when you get around to implementing, has anything changed? Do you have any updates for us? What do we need to know? Is this going to work in the cloud? Does it work in a single sign-on environment? Just all these little details that, you know, don't seem like a big deal until they don't work. 
right? And then it's a really, really big deal. Um, and then if you have a client going from on-prem to cloud, just make sure that making sure that everyone understands the changes, the challenges, the benefits of what that actually means. Because a lot of times these older companies, you know, will be on-prem and the cloud is just a whole nother universe, right? And what does that mean for all these customizations and all of that? And, and every single time there's an update, um, you know, what is that going to look like for our internal IT team? And just really, really understanding because, again, it's a completely different world. So that's kind of a long, long list. I have many more, but those are the main ones that come to mind. <laughs> those are those are good ones, especially, you know, I like the part about the way you describe all the little things that are big things that can affect a timeline. Um, there's a big difference between what a vendor says they could do in terms of implementing technology in theory versus implementing technology to fit a business and in actuality, you know, those two things oftentimes get disconnected in what the, the vendor thinks is possible versus what is realistically possible from an organizational right. operational perspective. Yeah. And I would always say, also say too, that coming from the vendor side, just remember that there's salespeople mm -hmm. um, and, you know, really doing due diligence on, oh yeah, sure. We can do that. You know, um, right. Really understanding what that's going to look like. And, um, and also understanding how much of the handholding is going to be done by the vendor. I think I had a much greater expectation, um, of this particular vendor than what has been delivered. And so there's been, um, quite a bit of disappointment and, and heartburn and even conflict at some points in the project. Right. Um, and, it was explained during the sales cycle that this customer was not familiar with an ERP implementation and we're going to need a lot of extra, um, you know, help and assistance. And that uh, has not been delivered. So a lot of times if you've been working for a vendor for 30 years, all the acronyms and all the things you say, it makes perfect sense to you because you do it every single day and making sure that that vendor really cares about that customer in a way that's going to explain things, break down the acronyms. What does this mean? How long is this going to take? How do we do this? How do we write a UAT script? How do we write? Um, saying something needs to be done and understanding actually what it looks like to, to get it done, to write a plan to get it done and, and helping your people, training your people on how to do it. Um, there's just been a big a big um, gulf <laughs> between what was expected and what's being delivered. So, yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good stuff. I mean, there's a very good, uh, I think that's a good overview of some of the higher priority obstacles and challenges and pitfalls that, that organizations often face. We see that the, a lot of those things you mentioned, we see often with right. uh, our other clients as well. And that's part of what we do is help, help manage and navigate those, those issues uh, for sure. So, well, I want to thank you. That, that was a very good overview. And uh, I know there's a lot more we could talk about. And in fact, we probably will want to have you back on to talk about, you know, as we get even further into the process, what are some of the additional lessons and curveballs and, you know, how did it go overall, all that stuff. So it might, this will be a good one to build on at some future point if you're open to that. Um, so I want to thank you for, for being on here today. This was, this was a super helpful discussion. Sure. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. All right. Thanks very much, Amanda. Thanks for being here on the show today. That was a great discussion and a lot of good nuggets and take, takeaways of, of stuff that we can all learn and, and apply to our digital transformations. In fact, Kyler and I are going to build on some of the points that we talked about here in just a moment. When we come back from a quick break, you're listening to Transformation Ground Control.
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 44. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and, and Kyler, we just had this great conversation with, with Amanda. She was sharing some of the the good, the bad, and the ugly of a transformation in a client that she's working with right now and some of those lessons. What were some of the things that jumped out at you as we were having that conversation? She is a consultant and also a therapist. You know, very well-spoken when it comes to our, our different initiatives here at Third Stage or what she's helping our clients through. So something I, w I wanted to kind of ask you about when we talk about those mid-size, specifically in those manufacturing business process space, type of clients, um, is that extremely difficult when she mentioned kind of just that overall process change and managing to that that fear? Yeah, it is very common. And, and by the way, back to your point about her um, being part therapist and being good at that, I, I totally agree with that. And that that's a part of what makes her such a, a great team member and such an effective consultant. Um, because to be a good consultant, you have to be very empathetic, which she is. And you have to understand people, you have to understand where they're coming from. And I think as executives, for those of you that are executives at uh, organizations that might be about to go through a transformation, or maybe you are going through one already, it's very tempting to think that this isn't going to be that difficult for people or people just need to get over it because we're changing. So why are we going to sit there and listen to them complain all day? You, you know, I get it. You don't, you know, there is a fine line there, but you do need to understand where people are coming from. And so uh, what I would say is that an overwhelming majority of clients that we work with, I'd say, I would argue that all of them, I can't think of a single example where this is not true, um, what I'm about to say, but that is that every organization has challenges with, with change management. And even the ones that think it's going to be easy, it's, it's typically a lot harder than they think. And it's especially true for organizations that have highly tenured staff, especially true for organizations that are very well established, very mature, well-defined processes, or at least processes that have been around for a long time, that makes it that much harder to change. So um, it is very common. And so in order to overcome that resistance, you do have to have that empathy and that therapist mindset that I need to understand why these people are afraid, um, not judge them for it, not because we're going to fix them or tell them why they're wrong, but because we need to understand why, is it because they're feeling insecure because they, you know, relied on heroics to, to add value to the organization. Now you're taking the heroics away because you're creating more of a, a standard process that is going to replace those heroics. Those are the kinds of things you have to understand in order to be effective as a change practitioner. And you can't really take a one-size-fits-all shotgun approach to change management. You need to target it to why why people are feeling that anxiety and fear. Do you experience a lot of resistance from those types of, of people when you are trying to go through an exercise like business process mapping, which she was kind of talking about that was something they were going through to try and optimize 
their overall business operations. Is that kind of a pain point or can that be hard to garner that data knowing that that's really all they've known since they've grown as an organization? It can be. Um, you know, usually the easy place to start to get that momentum and get people comfortable and get them engaged is to, is to talk about, you know, first of all, the things that are working because there are things that you're not going to change. You don't, you don't want to and you shouldn't change because they're so core to who you are as an organization. They're core to your, your customer experience. They're core to making you better than your competitors. And so you can build on those things and say, okay, we're doing these things well. So those might be things we, we leave alone. Here are things that we aren't doing well or things that are holding us back from getting to the next level. Um, and, and a lot oftentimes the team recognizes those. Like it's, it's a very manual process. We have to re-enter data. Or I spend a lot of my time looking you know, through emails for this piece of information that really should reside in a system or whatever it is. So then you get people excited about like, okay, yeah, these are real problems that, that make me stressed out. But then the... So those first two layers are, are, they're not easy, but it's a good way to get people engaged in, in, in a non-threatening way. But the third layer is then what are the more opportunistic opportunities to change? Maybe the things that the team's not thinking about. And these are sort of the, you know, industry uh, common business processes or as consultants, we see a lot of different business models and operational models that we can apply to different clients. And that's where we, we kind of bring our ideas in. And usually those are much better received when we've done those first two things, which is focus on the strengths, look at the immediate low-hanging fruit for opportunity, and then you get to the more strategic stuff that's sort of more the the forward-thinking um, changes. So it's easier said than done, but usually that's a, you know, a way to get the best of both worlds. You're bringing in those outside best practices. You're thinking outside the box. You're bringing in outside thinking from consultants, but you're also not disrupting and, and uh, threatening the team as much as they would be otherwise if you just came in hot with brand new ideas without considering, you know, how things are today. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I wonder, and this may be, you know, really basic question, but when you're, you're going through these, these different exercises to really lay out your processes, when you're trying to see, you know, what do we actually need from a software perspective? Is that hard to do in a manufacturing environment when you are a remote it, it is more difficult, I think. I, I know everyone is enamored with this whole Zoom thing and doing as much work remotely as possible. Um, I'll admit, as a caveat, I am somewhat old school. I think being in person, you just get more substance and there's more meat to it. Not that everything we do needs to be in person collaboratively, but there there is value in that for sure. Uh, especially with something like manufacturing, to your point, where it's not a white-collar type of job such as financial services where, okay, financial services company or even a bank or something like that, we, we don't need to necessarily see uh, the office or the cubicle where someone's sitting to understand what they're doing because they can show us just as easily on a screen. But when it comes to how you make a certain widget and how physically how stuff flows throughout a warehouse or through a shop floor, uh, how it gets loaded on the truck, I mean, you have to understand that. You can't understand that stuff fully without seeing it. And so I think there's a there's a balancing act that needs to happen for sure. You don't need to be it doesn't need to go all one direction or the other, but there's some middle ground that typically is pretty powerful for manufacturing companies especially. Excellent. Well, do, do you think you and a man complete and let us know, you know, how it kind of turns out because I know I was kind of like cliffhanger here, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We'll we'll definitely want to have her back. I think it would be a fun thread to kind of connect the dots from where we are today to where we are in the future. And, uh, you know, that, that case study was really interesting because, you know, every transformation has its challenges, every software solution and the software vendor adds to the, to the mix, some, some challenges, 
But in this case, this was sort of a second tier industry focused solution that isn't quite as robust in terms of its delivery capabilities. And those were the root causes of a lot of the challenges she was talking about. And so it's just something to be mindful of. I mean, you know, with those the, the tier two and tier three enterprise technology solutions, they, there's, a, there's unique challenges. And on the flip side, if you're going with like an SAP or an Oracle or Microsoft, one of the really big established, well-known vendors, those have their own challenges. And usually it's more focused on, it's trying to be everything to everyone and you're trying to make it fit your business. And sometimes fitting the business can be very difficult. So it's just a good reminder that different types of businesses, different types of technologies are going to have different uh, challenges and trade-offs. So uh, the long-winded way of saying, yeah, let's, let's have her back. I think it'd be good to see how that all comes full circle here. Well, good. Well, yeah, thanks for that, that uh, debrief with uh, our discussion with Amanda. And uh, speaking of great consultants and case studies, we are going to have uh, Adam Cheatham, who is a director on the third stage team. He's going to be on the show here. Uh, you had a chance to, to uh, do a video with him. Uh, I think it was for our YouTube channel, right? Or was it for our Stratosphere podcast, the, the sister podcast? Mm-hmm. Take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have Adam Cheatham on the show talking about uh, end of life with software vendors, in particular Microsoft Great Plains, but a lot of what we'll talk about here will apply to other vendors too, because a lot of them are, are doing the same thing, which is sunsetting their old legacy on-premise systems. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 44, your podcast for all things related to digital transformation, ERP implementations, HCM, CRM, supply chain management, best of breed, whatever it is you're doing in terms of your transformation, this podcast is for you. And in our final segment here today, uh, we wanted to talk about or or just play a clip of a video, Kyler, that you produced uh, with Adam Cheatham, who is uh, a director of strategy and transformation and spoiler alert, also your husband. Um, coincidentally, uh, who actually I've worked with since well before even starting Third Stage, and that's how I know you is through through him. Um, but the reason we want to have him on the show and the reason this clip is so fascinating is because we had put out a blog, or he wrote a blog, I don't know when it was, it was I think early this year maybe, they, he wrote a blog about Microsoft and their plans to sunset Great Plains. And at the time, they they had uh, set a date, I think, of 2025 was was when they were going to sunset Great Plains. But they got so much blowback that they they uh, changed that date. Well, in the meantime, we already published the blog, and then uh, it started getting a lot of traction. And, and Microsoft Vars and Microsoft themselves and a lot of people in the community have reached out to us saying, "Will you please take that blog down? 
and you're, I hope you don't mind me sharing the story. Your first reaction was, yeah, let's take this blog down. We don't want to upset anyone. You know, I'm the PR marketing person. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, make sure the vendors aren't mad at us. And I, I sort of overrode you and said, no, no, leave it up because as well, we're just the messenger. We, we are not the ones that decided we were going to cut off uh, support. We did add a disclaimer, sort of an update that says, okay, since this original blog, they've since walked back those comments, but the fact of the matter is this is what this is what the industry does and this is what drives me crazy about the industry is that they they make these unilateral changes that affect hundreds or thousands of of organizations throughout the world and they expect you just to deal with it and just suck it up and and it, you know becomes your problem and and then when people like us call it out we get flack for it sometimes so this is probably the most controversial blog we've ever published and i and i think I can say that pretty confidently, even the one, even as, even though I try to be controversial, sometimes this one, for whatever reason, really struck a nerve in the Microsoft community. So I'm excited to see what Adam has to say, but what were your thoughts just maybe to set it up or, or what, what can we expect in this discussion here? Yeah. So basically um, this all kind of stemmed from, we were getting a, a lot of emails and, and it sometimes is, you kind of have to laugh at it because they'll go through our content aggregator or contact um, system, and they'll put like, you are a liar at liarsareus.com. So it gets very like petty, which is something as per someone who's kind of new to the software space, I never had any idea that some people could get so passionate about this. And, and a few weeks back, we had actually a Google review that um, they had put, you know, Adam Cheatham puts the cheat in Cheatham, and I, you know, had written a funny email to him saying, you know, could you please stop disgracing the family name, you know, <laughs> dragging us through the mud? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I mean, it's an interesting topic. And by the way, you know, like just to say it again, you know, when you play this clip, it is very focused on Microsoft, but, but I would encourage anyone listening to this, that's thinking about, um, their, either their legacy system or their legacy vendor and, or any, uh, future state vendors they might be considering this is a very common tactic we're seeing in the market right now. It's a very, it's a very disruptive tactic. It's, it's unfortunately working for the vendors. It's, it's you're, they're scaring people and forcing them to upgrade to these cloud solutions um, that they make more money on. So it, this is all economically driven. This is all money driven. And so creating these artificial sunset dates are what a lot of them are doing. And Microsoft is by no means the, the only one doing it. And by the way, one last thing I'll say, not to beat a dead horse, but what, what I find ironic about all the complaints we're getting from the Microsoft community is that per what you mentioned earlier in this episode, Microsoft Dynamics is number one on our list of top 10 ERP systems. So on one hand, they're number one, but on the other hand, they are really upset with us because we call out the truth, which is you said end of life was 2025. Yes, you changed your mind, but that doesn't change the fact that you did set the date for end of life. So uh, I find that uh, dichotomy very, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like we've kind of talked about and done a pre-debrief, um, Adam Cheatham here is going to talk about um, being a part of the Microsoft like, Great Plains kind of big scandal within the third stage community. So with that, welcome, Adam. It's great to have you. So Adam, you've been getting a lot of grief on the internet. You've been almost like canceled, if you will when it comes to Microsoft Great Plains because of all of the vendor feedback. Can you kind of tell us why that is? Well, for starters, um, you know, this is a, a bit of a disruptive story um, because you know, vendors that, that sell and maintain uh, Microsoft Great, Great Plains make a lot of money off of that. Um, 
Now, um, we've gotten quite a lot of feedback over a multitude of channels about that blog. Uh, for those of you who are uh, who have recently read it, um, you may have noticed that we've also updated that blog to make sure that it is it is accurate. Um, for starters, though, the Microsoft at one point did come out and announce a plan to end of life great great planes. Um, and I, I believe the year was for 2025. Um, now, the reason that I know that this is true is because I have had vendor uh, clients who have called and told me freaking out before we even wrote the blog that they heard from their vendor, Microsoft is going to be end of life in Great Plains support in 2025, and it's time to upgrade to Microsoft Dynamics um, FNO or Business Central. So, um, out there in the marketplace, vendors are telling their clients that this is going to happen. Um, I didn't make this story up. I didn't get it from in, from some fictional place. I'm getting it from uh, from clients of ours who are sharing the uh, the pressure that their vendors and, and system integrators and, and system uh, support teams are applying on them to upgrade from. Uh, Microsoft Great Plains to a, a more lucrative platform for that. Gotcha. Um, and so let's kind of back up and talk about what Microsoft Great Plains is and yeah. why companies have such an affinity for it. So uh, Microsoft Great Plains is a very strong finance focused ERP. Um, it does do so, uh, quite a lot of things in the manufacturing space and the, uh, the distribution space, but it's mostly focused on finance. Um, it's been around for quite some time. Um, it's a it's a strong legacy system and has a a bit of a cult following that not very many um, legacy ERP uh, systems enjoy. So Microsoft folks that are on Microsoft Great Plains have been uh, tend to have been on it for quite some time. And um, and really like the functionality in it, which is part of why this story is so disruptive, because they like this software system, mm -hmm. and uh, to to be uh, threatened with end of life by their software provider um, is a is, is a scary moment for those businesses. Absolutely, and so in kind of digging into a lot of the feedback that you get, and I think it's important for our community to know. We get feedback from vendors all the time about content we put out because um, we are completely agnostic and independent. So that those opinions, because they're not influenced by anyone, that means that a lot of times the vendors had wished we had said something different. So that's pretty typical for an independent entity like Third Stage because we're gonna recommend what's best for our clients not what's best for the vendor or so vendors like us. That's kind of the, the disruptive nature of the content that we put out. Just with Great Plains, we seem to have kind of struck a nerve in there. Um, if anyone wants some comedic relief, you can head over to our Google reviews where Adam has put the, the cheat in Cheatum according to the bot <laughs> from some reviews there. Um, and we share a last name, so you know I, I really um, take offense to that deeply. But <laughs> we just a side note of kind of how that works when it comes to our vendor communications. It we talk a lot about it with Eric that we're kind of 
frenemies, if you will, when it comes to vendors. They're important and value partners, but we don't do what they say. Um, so just kind of a caveat to kind of understand that relationship. So Adam, when it comes to Great Plains and you get this information as a client, what are what are the next steps to kind of deciding what you do? So um, there are a number of things that are important to, to remember in this space. First and foremost, um, just because Microsoft is going to eventually one day stop supporting Microsoft Great Plains, that doesn't mean that there won't be um, av uh, available services for supporting Great Plains. Um, there are literally thousands of Microsoft partners in, um, across the world who support all kinds of different Microsoft packages, Great Plains included, um, and, and more will pop up as Microsoft starts to vacate that space. Um, so that doesn't just because Microsoft stops supporting it doesn't mean that you won't get support. I have clients on all kinds of different software systems who uh, which have have been end of life. There is no support for them. Some of them are written in languages that uh, that don't exist in programming anymore, and they still uh, uh, have partners to help them support those systems. So that doesn't just because Microsoft vacates that space doesn't mean that you uh, you no longer can use Microsoft Great Plains as your software uh, enterprise software. So that's thing one. Um, thing two is that uh, as you start to think about what your upgrade path looks like, the the upgrade path for Microsoft Great Plains to uh, Microsoft Dynamics 365 is, for all intents and purposes, a brand new implementation. So what I would encourage you to understand and as you're upgrading or, or considering it is there are other software packages out there that may be a more viable fit for you than Microsoft Dynamics, uh, 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 whether it's Business Central, Finance Operations, Supply Chain, or uh, whichever package it is uh, they're calling it these days. Um, you have lots more options, particularly uh, as you're thinking about your company size. You know, companies that are on Microsoft Great Plains tend to be in the small to medium business space, um, and in a lot of ways, there are other systems that are better fits. Um, Enforcement Line, NetSuite, um, you know, Microsoft Business Central is a viable uh, upgrade path. Um, Epicor, uh, Acumatica. There, are, there are tons of other options out there that you may consider if you are thinking about upgrading from uh, Great Plains. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Why would a company like Microsoft discontinue something that seems to have quite a cult following, if you will? 
Well, the, we're seeing this um, even more so in the um, in the uh, software as a subscription space. Um, right now, Microsoft or any service provider only makes money off of Great Plains as a maintenance package, um, which is typically a pretty low fee. Um, as you start thinking about migrating to a uh, subscription service um, like uh, Dynamics 365, you are now creating a monthly cash flow option where your uh, where Microsoft's clients um, will pay for software month to month. That's a dramatic change in the revenue model for them and a, and a significant financial incentive. Um, that's part of it, right? There are also some costs to maintaining my, uh, you know, more antiquated software uh, and as it pertains to the, the um, company that, that owns it. Um, Microsoft right now is starting to focus all of their research and development dollars on other software systems. So keeping up with Great Plains, the security patches, uh, making sure that it, uh, particularly from a cybersecurity perspective, um, bug fixes, those types of things, it costs time and resources. And uh, Microsoft, as, as you would expect, would rather put that time and resource, those time and resources into um, a more lucrative pa uh, package that allows for the creation of a more consistent revenue stream. And it's not just Microsoft that's doing this. Um, you know, uh, and uh, what's interesting about this is that the other package that I've seen this the most uh, frequently with um, is uh, JD Edwards, uh, which is owned by Oracle. Um, JD, uh, JD Edwards was almost uh, um, an accidental, uh, or we'll call it an incidental purchase when my when Oracle purchased PeopleSoft, and they they wanted to get away from supporting JD Edwards from the moment they purchased PeopleSoft. I think it was in the 90s, um, and they have been unable to sunset that program. That doesn't mean that or, uh, Oracle isn't trying to get people off of JD Edwards and onto Oracle ERP Cloud, um, because again, Oracle ERP Cloud is a um, subscription software that creates a, um, a monthly or a quarterly uh, revenue for Oracle. And I've even had clients who've wanted to compare JD Edwards to Oracle ERP Cloud and see which uh, whether it's uh, more viable to uh, sink more resources into a larger JD Edwards footprint or to move into Oracle ERP Cloud. And Oracle won't sell it to them. They wouldn't give them a price sheet. They wouldn't give them any uh, costs on what additional licenses would be. Uh, they, they wouldn't provide implementation services costs. So it's the, the point here is that um, there's a revenue side of this and there's a cost side of this. It's better revenue for these ERP companies to get you into the cloud, not a subscription service. And um, it also is a lower cost for them to continue maintaining these antiquated systems. Gotcha. I want to come back to the subscription model in just a little bit, but just so we know, what is Microsoft Great Plains now going to do? Are they going to end their support for the system in 2025, or what's kind of the latest there? No. So. Um, they're continuing support for quite uh, for several years beyond that 2025, that original 2020 or more recent 2025 deadline. Um, so they'll continue to support that package. Uh, what's likely to happen is that they'll come out in a couple of years and say, all right, we're going to end the life it, uh, create a little bit of buzz around it, see if they can't get a couple of upgrades out of it and then walk that back. Um, this is pretty common in this space. 
uh, you'll see it with other uh, software providers. That's what's probably going to happen. My guess is that um, as the as the space comes together, it, there's still quite a um, quite a long runway as far as uh, the roadmap for Microsoft Grade Planes is concerned. Right. So just out of curiosity, because it can look like you know you don't like Microsoft or something like that. Is that true, or is that true for any system that third stage may or may not recommend? Yeah, and, um, for stars that uh, third stage and I um, as well are 100% industry software technology agnostic, totally independent. I don't have a preference for which software uh, products my clients are on, whether it's what their legacy system is or what their future system might be. Um, my main focus is to consider technology as an enabler of business objectives. And when technology is serving, serving to inhibit those business objectives, it's time to make some changes. Um, so, you know, if Microsoft Great Plains is still continuing to serve your business and allow you to grow, then great, keep it. Um, I, I don't if you're on any other software platform, if it's doing what you want it to do and allowing you to grow, then keep it. There's no need to spend a ton of money on an ERP upgrade because that's that that does get expensive. So, uh, you know, I don't have a preference on uh, on what that looks like. And we are um, we're recommending different software packages, Microsoft included um, all the time. So I, I would say that it's, um, for those who think that we're biased against Microsoft, um, get in line because there are folks that think that we're, we're biased against every other platform that's their favorite, um, and and it's just part of the uh, the cost of doing business for a firm which um, takes an independent stance. You get people that want to throw rocks at you from just about every direction. Sure, and just for comparison's sake, we do have a top ten ERP system list just generally for 2022 and Microsoft D63 sorry Cassie cut that one <laughs> Microsoft D363 geez <laughs> Microsoft Dynamics 365 is number one on our list this year and that's a new movement in that leadership so that's a huge placement we do PR campaigns around it that type of thing so that should showcase you know that we we are we have great partners at Microsoft um, and continue to support them when it makes sense for our clients. So moving to that subscription model, I'm interested to hear your feedback. You know, we talk a lot about ERP cloud and what that means in migrating from maybe an on-premise system to a cloud solution and the costs that come with that. So a lot of times we've heard from our community, our audience or our clients that these are being kind of pitched or um, communicated in a way that um, equates to cost savings. And that might not be the case in the long term. So I wondered your feedback when it came to that subscription based model and cloud yeah. solutions. So I mean, it's to get beyond a five year total cost of ownership on cost savings and expenses is is really difficult to do um, on a five year total cost of ownership. We do tend to see that um, on premise versus um, versus subscription services do tend to be about the same. If you start to factor in all the hardware support that you need for on prem 
um, and, and, and uh, the maintenance fees and, and those types of things because um, you're going to have to buy servers and you're going to have to maintain a server room and all those types of things. You're going to have to pay somebody to do that. Um, so there, there is a cost associated with that on the on-prem side that we see about over five years, it's about even. Um, the challenge is after that, um, your license fees don't go down, they go up um, as time goes on, whereas uh, your your maintenance fees for uh, your system integrator and, and uh, maintenance partner um, remain more or less static and are uh, a fraction of the cost. So um, there's a good chance if you looked farther out at it, that from a, um, just a pure dollar comparison, um, on-premise could uh, could shake out to be less expensive um, on the whole, but um, at the same time, you don't get the benefits of continuing to have that live updating software. One of the greatest benefits of, of cloud and subscription-based software packages is you are always up to date um, and you are always uh, getting all of the upgrades that are being deployed with the system um, as opposed to um, being stuck in a more static environment where it's on you to determine when your upgrades are brought in um, and it's much more difficult to maintain that on your own. Gotcha. So it's kind of sounds like it really as as in my favorite thing for consultants to always say is it depends, right? Is always the, yes. the answer. It depends on the organization and their needs. When it comes to the subscription-based type of model, is that where the industry is heading as a whole? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the the subscription-based model is is not going away anytime soon. Um, it seems to me that that's a uh, that's a well, at least for me personally, that's a bit of a challenge in that, um, you know, it doesn't matter how successful your business is, um, your subscription fees will always be there. Um, and it puts you in a position where you're dependent on continuing to pay those fees to be able to run your business. Um, it would almost be like having to pay a heart, uh, a cardiologist to keep my heart pumping. Um, and if I, uh, depending on the circumstances of my life, if I, um, I don't have the money to pay for that. Well, too bad. Um, sucks for you. Uh, so as as businesses change, it it does become create a different dependency on your software and the costs associated to it. Um, that's really hard to mitigate those costs uh, as time goes on. So I'd say that this is this is going to stick around long term. You're going to see more and more of these types of things, not just as software platforms as a service but also integration platforms as a service to be able to connect two, two different cloud services to each other. You'll pay for that. So now all of a sudden you're paying three different subscriptions um, you know, on, on the whole. So it's, it's not going away anytime soon, that's for sure. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or 
download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. And what would be some best practices for companies to be able to budget for these types of subscription models? Or what's the best way that you recommend to prepare when it comes to considering that in the evaluation process? Yep. So focus first and foremost on getting the right system that fits your business, um, that is going to enable the type of growth and objectives that uh, that you're shooting for because um, if in the end you continue to grow, you don't have to face that problem. Um, so you want to first and foremost get the right system um, uh, and, and implement it well is the second piece of it. Um, try to stay as out of the box as possible. Uh, try to uh, stay as vanilla as possible. Know that you know modifications to software are required to, to maintain competitive advantages and in, in, um, in who you are in the marketplace. And that's important to also realize, but um, on the whole, implementing as close to standard functionality as possible and adjusting to be able to accommodate that um, is another important piece that will allow you to continue to grow with that system um, and, and allow you to continue to reap the benefits of that system as it evolves. Interesting. Those are definitely all great considerations um, when moving to uh, you know, a cloud-based platform or looking at that subscription model in general. Um, any final thoughts when it comes to Microsoft Great Plains or any, you know, message to your haters out there when it comes to any additional feedback or um, yeah. recommendations for clients? Um, for sure. So, again, um, I didn't make that up. I got it directly from the horse's mouth. Vendors who are telling clients that come to us that their vendor said, Great Plains is end of life in 2025. Um, that message has changed, of course, um, and we're we're glad to see that. Um, and it's uh, you know Microsoft Great Plains is a fantastic software platform. It it uh, serves our our clients very well. I'm um, in a lot in a lot of spaces, so I would say that um, you know don't be afraid to to keep Microsoft Great Plains. Um, but at the same time, if you find that you've outgrown it and it's no longer servicing your needs. Or you want to think long term and say, you know, this means that um, there's a shift in tone around Great Plains and that the the support that it's going to get from Microsoft will continue to wane in the future. Then uh, give us a call. Uh, reach out to us on LinkedIn um, or through our website and just let's have a conversation about where you're at and maybe I can help you figure out what it is the best next steps are for you. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today, Adam. We we always love having you. Um, and if do have additional questions, um, Adam's contact information is below in our description. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and check out our software comparison playlist if you'd like some more information on software systems in general. Great insight and you know sorry you're experiencing some cancel culture within <laughs> within this piece of um, content that you help us put together. Again, I would really encourage all of our listeners to go read the blog and then read the updates too um, as we continue to watch this evolving story. But thank you so much for being here today. And after the break, Eric and I will kind of talk more about what it means to be a disruptor within the software vendor community.
If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm Heather Cheatham here with Eric Kimberling. And Eric, I, I'm curious to hear as kind of the OG disruptor of software vendors being mad at you, does, does that um, create any sort of reaction when it comes to kind of what Adam has experienced with the significant blowback from the Great Plains blog? Yeah, I mean, it. it um, we get most of the time you'd be surprised that most of the time I expect more blowback than we get. So there's blogs I've written where I just think, okay, you know, this, I've really crossed a line now, or, you know, I'm going to get an extreme amount of pushback on this one. Uh, a couple of examples were, um, you know, a while back I'd written an article, this is a long time ago, maybe three years ago or in the early months of having just started third stage when we we're still trying to make a name for ourselves and whatnot. Um, I wrote a blog about uh, getting accentured. And basically calling out Accenture and, and not just Accenture, but Deloitte and all the big system integrators that sort of, uh, you know, that, that have a tendency to mislead and to mismanage expectations with their clients. And they tend to take over implementations. They tend to charge too much. They tend to hide things from clients. A lot of unhealthy behavior. And I know because I used to work at one of them um, back in early in my career. And, and I certainly, we see it all the time as an independent advisor. So that blog, for example, I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get a ton of pushback on this because I'm calling out the big guys in the system integrator space. And it was fascinating how many sort of uh, anonymous or, um, you know, confidential emails I got that said, yeah, I work for Accenture. Oh, yeah, I work for Deloitte. And you're exactly right. That's exactly what happens. You know, I'm, I'm only here for a year or two and then I'm out, you know, that sort of thing. I thought, wow. Like, I, so it actually created in a weird way a stronger connection with a lot of the front lines, I would say, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the masses within these big organizations. And and I honestly would never have expected that Adam's blog about Microsoft would have created that that sort of reaction. So it's just interesting to see how how sensitive people people get. And I think I think with Microsoft though, I think they know it was a mistake, and and by doing that, and obviously they did think it was a mistake because they backed off of it and changed the date to twenty thirty or whatever it is now. Um, but they um, but they were but the problem was is is then they were hearing it. People were finding the blog because if you Google. Uh, Microsoft Great Plains, our blog now shows up very high in the search results. So people are seeing that and they're asking questions like, what's this about end of life? And so it's it's irritating a lot of salespeople. They're trying to close deals, still trying to sell Great Plains, which is a whole nother issue, by the way. I don't know why there's, you know, there are people out there that are still trying to sell Great Plains, even though it's a legacy product that will eventually go away. But that's a whole nother story. So I think that was a big driver was that people were, uh, it was creating problems for them when they were trying to sell their product, people would find our blog. And I think it was, it was disrupting their sales process. So our job is not here to help anyone sell anything. It's just to sell it like it is. 
Yeah, absolutely. I guess I didn't realize that it's not all up to the software vendors. So that was kind of news to me in, in that piece of it, um, that you do really have more control than software vendors want you to think that, that you do have over that. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at some extreme, even more extreme examples. You have clients that are still using AS400 systems from vendors that don't even exist anymore in some cases, but they still have the software. It's not ideal. It's not, you know, obviously the, the software is not evolving as quickly as the more current ERP systems. But, you know, if you, if you as a business are, if the, if the software is working and it's, you've got other fish to fry or other priorities as an organization, there's no need for you to necessarily just jump in and rip out your old system and put in a new one. You, you'll have to eventually, but it may or may not be the right time now. So I think that's the thing that people forget. And you put it well when you said that people have more control than they think. I think vendors overplay their hands quite a bit. But the problem is not enough. You know, a lot of organizations aren't sophisticated enough to call the bluff uh, of of these vendors. And so so they end up just sort of following along because they think they have no choice. But you're right. You don't need you don't need to have the ongoing maintenance. I mean, you could, you could turn off your maintenance on any vendor you have other than cloud solutions. And that is a problem with cloud solutions, by the way, you, you can't turn off the maintenance or that subscription fee that's going on forever. But with on-prem, at least you could, you could turn off your, your maintenance and support at any time. It just means you're responsible for it and you take on the risk, but that, that may or may not be the right thing for you. It was kind of alarming the scenario that Adam played out in saying that, again, he heard this from vendors or I'm sorry, from clients coming to him saying like, this is what they're telling me I have to do. Like, do I have to do that? And I think that might have caused the the piece of disruption because his recommendation was, no, you know, let's one, back up, see what's actually happening. And two, you don't have to go from Great Plains to, a, to D365. Like, that might be the right choice. But we're going to go through a whole business evaluation before we just say, oh, yeah, give me the the latest and greatest. And sometimes I wish that was how, I wish we had like a business advisor when it came to every sort of upgrade, like for my iPhone, you know, what if I still wanted an iPhone one and now we're on, I don't know, like 18 or something like that. And, um, you know, it, it is kind of, I feel like a, a distrust within the tech industry of like, you kind of just get prescribed like what you need to do. And there's no one really there saying, Hey, you don't actually have to do any of that. Um, and that was kind of a, an eye opener again for me. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's good at advising clients on, you know, the, the, the truth behind, you know, what, what their options are. And, and that's the role that our team plays is, you know, you have to look at this stuff objectively and every, every decision has trade-offs. If you stick with Great Plains or you stick with whatever old legacy system you might be using, yes, there are risks associated with that. Yes. You're not getting the latest and greatest. Yes. You're not in the cloud yet. All that stuff. But at the same time, the good news is you're not taking on the risk of a new implementation. You're also not spending a lot more money on these new technologies. Uh, it allows you to focus, you know, on other things. Maybe you're focusing on process improvement or, uh, you know, redesigning your organization to get more efficiencies or whatever it is. I mean, there, there's always competing priorities and it's up to us to help clients to figure out what is the right um, sequence, sequence of events. And even though we are a digital transformation consulting firm, there are times where we say, you know, technology is the least of your problems right now. You need to fix your people, your processes, your your alignment internally, or whatever the case may be, before you ever even think about um, transformation. And that and that's the beauty of not selling software is we don't we're not tied to software in general or specific vendors either. How do you manage that 
relationship? Like, does it ever become awkward? Because I can assume that, like, sometimes, like you said, you're just simply not going to recommend a certain vendor's technology because it's not the right fit for the client. Is there any kind of hard feelings with that vendor before? Or how do you kind of navigate that? It seems like it would be a little bit of a weird um, relationship. Yeah, it it is uh, weird and, and it is difficult to navigate, partly because you're dealing with humans and, you know, when you're dealing with sales reps that have a lot at stake to close this opportunity, you know, for example, you look at it, some of our bigger clients will spend t- literally tens of millions of dollars on software and services for a transformation. So you look at the commission check that someone's getting for that sale, uh, oftentimes it's seven figures. It's, it, it'll literally be in the millions of dollars that that person can make. And so think of, I guess you just have to ask yourself, if I had a million dollars at stake, you know, not to say that you all of us would necessarily be unethical or all of us would necessarily lie, but we're probably going to work pretty hard to make sure we get that deal done. If there's someone like us in our way, you know, that's, that's sort of being objective and sort of calling out the things that maybe you don't necessarily want that uh, prospect prospective uh, customer to hear, you might get a little irritated with it. And so, you know, most of the time our team is pretty good at um, mitigating and neutralizing the, uh, the the fallout because everyone's unhappy when they lose. And they, and, you know, a lot of times we get accused of being biased. You know, you know, for example, if, if we evaluated five vendors, four of them are going to lose. And those four oftentimes think we're biased, even though we may have just selected one of them, you know, for the previous client or whatever. So, it, you know, it's almost like a no-win situation sometimes. But I think our team has enough emotional intelligence to be able to navigate those things and sort of people are starting to recognize that if, if they look around at all the clients we work with throughout the world, you see such a disparate or, or such a, not a disparate, but such a variety of different systems that we're recommending and helping implement that you can't, there's nothing you can point to that would even suggest or even uh, come close to being biased uh, in, in, in their client base. So I think companies are starting to recognize that, but it, you still get individual personalities that are that have hurt feelings and hurt pocketbooks because they didn't get the commission they think they were entitled to and they, they blame us. So that's okay. You know, it's better us than our clients. That's part, that's, that is a part of why clients hire us because we can take the, we can take the fall for that sort of stuff. Crazy, you know, type of scenario to kind of watch and witness dramatic. You know, I, I felt like I was watching like a Bravo episode or so. It's, it's a real eye opener to the biases within the industry. And a lot of times what independent consultants can go through to just have, their own opinion. Um, but again, showcases the value of really having someone to kind of navigate the situation and decode. And thanks to Adam for for um, sharing his um, turmoil when it comes to Microsoft Great Plains. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was helpful. And it's it really interesting to hear his conversation. And, and it's a great blog, too, if you get a chance to check that out on our, on our website. Or if you just Google Microsoft Great Plains End of Life, you'll you'll find the blog. And that that's why Microsoft's so upset. So, <laughs> so yeah. Good discussion, but uh, well, well, thanks, Kyler. That was a good good discussion on this and the other topics we had here today. Uh, Want to wish everyone uh, that is from the United States listening today uh, happy Thanksgiving, and of course, if you're listening after the fact, I hope you had a Thanksgiving. To those of you throughout the world, I uh, hope you're preparing for uh, happy holidays as we enter the holiday season for much of the world, and uh, look forward to more episodes here uh, as we wrap up the year 2021. Uh, Again, every Wednesday, you can find new episodes on YouTube, LinkedIn, and all the audio podcast platforms. So be sure to subscribe to wherever you watch or listen. Uh, Share it with friends and colleagues, anyone who you think might benefit from this content. We'd love to keep getting the word out. So I want to thank everyone for their support of the show and this podcast and uh, helping us uh, spread the the show. So 
Thanks very much, everyone. I hope you have a great day, and we will see you all next week on Transformation Ground Control. Take care. Thank you.